You are listening to a sermon by New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, it is good to be with you all. I think it was 2019 was the last time we were together as churches celebrating Good Friday, and that is way too long. So it's good to be back together. And sorry, I, th- I thought the rocket ship was taking off. <laughs> Didn't know what it was for a moment there. I'm okay. Uh, t- tonight we're going to take just a moment or two. Actually, my congregation knows that when the passage that we read is short, the sermon is long. Uh, however, tonight's ser- passage is long, so you can make your own conclusion. We'll see what happens. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 22 together tonight, and I'm going to read verses 14 to 30. It's a, it is a little bit of a long passage, and we're certainly not going to try uh, to deal with all of it tonight, but I think it holds together, and we'll see hopefully why. Uh, but let's listen as I read uh, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. This is God's word. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table." For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the great, greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat And drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this word as we seek you tonight and as we want to behold the heart of our Savior Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes and teach us by the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In my family, over the years, we have tried hard to preserve the dinner table. 
And uh, it always comes with challenges. And if you've tried to preserve having a meal together regularly, you probably know some of those challenges. Now, when our kids were little, it was all about attention span, right? It was about trying to actually keep them at the table for that time, right? And uh, then, you know, now that our kids are older, it's about just trying to find for a time for us all to actually be in the house at the same time. And as we would spend time at the table, it would be a place where we would, we would gather to, to talk about the day and the events. We would laugh. We would bond. Sometimes we would cry. Sometimes we would, we would heal conflict that happens. We would read the scriptures together. Uh, we would pray. We'd try to survey life and hopefully build healthy family life. But around the table is also uh, the, the time where I saw my own failure so much. Um, sometimes as family dinners would go on, I'd think, you know, okay, it's my role. I'm the spiritual leader. I'm the one who's going to lead us. I'm going to open the scriptures. And I open the scriptures. And then uh, we, we get into it. And then for some reason, Satan inhabits the dog. And the dog, or the dogs in our case, um, begins to scratch or make noises, or pace about, or somebody says something, and everybody starts laughing. And of course, in my godliness, my response is, hey, this is the word of God. And uh, that's the difficulty of the dinner table, is that it's not just a place where family bonding happens. It's sometimes where family uh, sees dad's sin. And we have to work through that together. And as I read this passage that we're looking at tonight, I was struck by the the moment that this band of brothers has sitting around the table. And the disciples are there with their master to celebrate this one last, one final Passover. And tonight I want to listen in together onto their into their conversation for just a few minutes. We're not going to be able to look at everything that's in here, uh, but, and in fact, the words of institution, I'm going to leave that to Ted as we, he leads us through the supper, but I want us to get a sense of the heart of Jesus as we see his desire to be with his brothers in these final hours before he goes to the cross. And, and I want us to see what he wants for us as well. He wants to give them a place at the table, and he wants to do the same for us, even though some of the specifics might be different. Uh, we'll see how Jesus earned this place at the table for each of them. So I want us to look at his heart to be with his disciples for a few minutes and see his heart uh, even in their weakness, how his heart is still there for his disciples in their failure, and even in the, uh, through the weakness, how Jesus grants them just this scandalous place in the kingdom. It's amazing. So let's think about each of those for just a few minutes. First, see Jesus' heart just in general. Look at verse 15. You can see this on the back of the bulletin for tonight. 
When the hour came, he reclined at table and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover. The, the words there, they have this sense that there is this passionate desire that Jesus has to be with his disciples. And everything had been leading up to these moments in Jesus' life. He'd called these men. They had spent their days and nights with him. They'd eaten many meals. They'd seen his miracles, heard him teach and they'd encountered opposition together. They'd asked him questions. They'd been overwhelmed by his power, and at times they'd asked, who is this man? That's what they've seen from him. And now, one last time, Jesus wanted to be with them. And what does he say? I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover. Why? Remember, in John's Gospel, it tells us that he'd he'd already washed their feet, by the time this conversation probably started. He loved them, he served them, he cared for them, and he found comfort in their brotherhood. They really have probably very little to no idea what's about to happen to them. But there's no one he would rather be with to share these last moments before he went to the cross. And notice the words he says, I've earnestly desired to share this Passover. It's the Passover meal. It's the meal that the Hebrews would eat every year to commemorate the glorious deliverance from slavery that they encountered so many generations ago, that they still would eat together. Because of all it signified, Jesus wanted to eat that meal with them before, they, before he suffered, remembering their redemption from slavery as they recited scripture together, as they sang, as they ate as they would drink the cup of thanksgiving together. And Jesus would show them how this meal was coming to its fulfillment. And he says, I want to eat this meal before I suffer. It was his hour of greatest earthly need. He knew what was coming. He wanted to have encouragement. And it seems from what follows that Jesus wanted them to know the significance of that meal. So he would take the elements, and you could see it in the passage in verse 17 and following. He takes the cup, and he says, take this and divide it among yourselves. I tell you, in this uh, interesting statement that many have tried to understand, where he says, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes, which may well mean that he is not going to share a meal like this until he's in glory with his people, maybe looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb looked at in Revelation 19. But whatever it is that it means, uh, he shows this to be really the last Passover. Some have called this not the last supper, but the first supper. Because this is now the, the meal that is picturing all that Jesus was going to come to do. When he reaches out and he says, take, eat, this is my body given for you. When he says, Take, drink. This is the the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Now this meal signifies all the deliverance from the slavery to sin. And he wanted them to know that. It was a new era. No longer would they do this in in remembrance of Egypt. They would do it in remembrance of Jesus. His kingdom would be brought in and the destroyer would pass over them and fall on Jesus. And here's the heart of why Jesus wanted to eat and be with them. And he wants for us too, as we take this meal in just a few minutes, 
he wants us to, to know this new exodus, this new deliverance, so we can come to the table tonight because Jesus earnestly desires fellowship with you. He wants to draw you near as you celebrate on this Good Friday. That's the first aspect of his heart that you see just as he shares this meal. But what's amazing to me is that the heart of Jesus, it seems to me, would be tempt, he would be tempted to lose heart in just a moment. He says something amazing in this because you would think he, he would say, eat, drink, this is my body, this is my blood, and they have a wonderful time together and then they're done. And he goes on and he suffers, goes to the cross. But that's not what he does. Jesus is not done teaching them. Look at the text and see more of his heart. He says in verse 21, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. He's going to show them now just how much they need him to go to the cross. And immediately, this causes commotion in their midst. Jesus had the remarkable ability to say hard things, things that you and I probably couldn't say, or if we did say, we'd probably have a bad response, say it in the wrong way. But Jesus spoke with the proper mixture of love and solemnity here as he said, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And Immediately when that happens, the other Gospels actually tell us that they begin to ask Jesus, is it, is it I, Lord? Am I the one? But Luke does something different. Luke probably is maybe showing us what happens next. They probably began questioning themselves, but eventually they turn on one another. Look at what it says in the text. The Son of Man, he says, and they began, uh, verse 28, or 23, sorry, and they began to question one another, which of them who could, it could be who was going to do this? So if Matthew's gospel, for example, says, is it I, Lord? Luke highlights that they're saying to one another, is it you? Now imagine how this goes for just a moment. <laughs> there, you can imagine how this could go south. Very quickly, wait, is it you, Matthew? James? I think I wondered about that guy, John, one day. John? And they're starting to look crossways at each other. And then it seems that, that they turn from asking the question to now they're on the defense. Look at verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. See, here's where the dinner table just goes south. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're in chaos, and everybody's turning on one another, and an old argument seems to resurface. This is not the first time they've had this argument. They were caught by Jesus once, Mark's gospel tells us. They're walking along the way, and Jesus says, what are you talking about? And their answer is, um, nothing. And they won't talk about it, because they were discussing which one of them was the greatest. James and John even sent their mom one time, go and see if Jesus will put you two at the front of the line, on my right and my left hand. This was a, a familiar argument, and it comes back. And you can imagine how, what version of it would come back this time, where now they start to accuse, was it you, Matthew? And Matthew says, hey, listen, I was the tax collector. I had a lucrative career before I left this, for this. Why would I betray this guy? And then 
they turn to James and John. Hey, he calls us the sons of thunder. Why would we turn on that? John says, uh, hello, the disciple who Jesus loved, you know. Peter and James and John are all thinking, I was the one who got to go up the mountain and see his glory. So they're all defending themselves. They've gone from this moment where they're sharing rich fellowship to now they're backbiting and accusing. And it's shockingly inappropriate given the circumstance, isn't it? Think about it. Have you ever been in one of those moments where your family falls into an argument in front of company and you're like, oh, uh, hmm. And the company feels like, how do I step out? It's shockingly inappropriate for them to descend into this because Jesus had just said, I've earnestly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. They should have been embracing this moment with Jesus. This was their last night with him. They didn't maybe know that or understand that, but they were focused on their argument, not on their master. Their response is self-centered. They should have been continuing down the line of thinking, is it me? Am I the one? Am I, is there something in my heart that I need to understand? Could there be treachery in me? But instead of chasing that line of humility, they chase the line of pride, excusing their sin in their hearts. In fact, what they don't really know is that it's not just one of them who was going to betray Jesus. Because as we know, after Jesus is arrested, Mark's gospel tells us then all the disciples left him and fled. All of them. So while Judas was the overt betrayer, they all walked away. And it had to be so, didn't it? Because Jesus needed to go to the cross alone. And we need to stop and just take heart for just a moment. Because I could have just as easily been there sitting at the table, defending myself, thinking that I, I could not ever consider betraying Jesus. And here's my resume as to why. It's so easy for us to defend ourselves. When a, a, an accusation gets shot at us. They're sharing this meal and then a, a dagger gets sent across the table and how do I respond? If I were there, I think I could have done the same thing. And how do we know that? Well, how many times have we gotten into an argument on the patio after church, just after worshiping, and then poof? Or we just take the Lord's Supper, we get in the car and then we yell at our kids. We're, we're, we're just as prone to those kinds of outbursts. And Jesus calls us to examine our hearts in such a way. But the good news here is that the heart of Jesus is not deterred by our sin. He is not deterred. See, because here's the thing. The disciples are going around the table reciting their resumes, and if I were in Jesus' shoes, which praise God I'm not, if I were in his shoes, I would be thinking, why did I call this dinner in the first place? I should have stayed home, ordered takeout. Or perhaps he would have rebuked them. You all still don't get it, do you? How many times have we talked about this argument? But here's the, the issue for us that we need to see. Because Jesus doesn't do any of those things. Instead, what we see is the, the failure of his disciples does not ignite or arouse his anger it ignites his pity and mercy 
And I want to say that again in a different way because we need to hear it as you think of the death of Jesus and the celebration of Good Friday and why Jesus went to the cross. The sin of unbelievers may kindle the wrath of God because the wrath of God is, is poured out on those who reject him. But the sin of his people arouses his mercy. What does he do? Well, first, he, he corrects them. But then, shockingly, he commends them. And finally, he crowns them. Look at what happens. Verses 22, 25 to 30, he corrects them instead of rebuking them. And he uses an example of rulers. He says, the kings of the Gentiles, they act like you're acting. They exercise lordship and uh, they are the ones that do this. But not so with you, he says, verse 26. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Flips it on its head. The natural order of things is totally reversed. The leader becomes the one who serves. The one who is greater is the one who reclines at table. Not the one who serves, but he says, but I am among you as one who serves. So he corrects them by showing his own example, his life that he's lived, that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. But then, you'd think that would be the end of the lesson. Instead, look at what he does. Immediately after having this argument ringing in the, in the room of how great they all think they are, Jesus says something that shocks me. In fact, I think these are the most shocking words in this whole intercourse, from my perspective at least. He says this, verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. To me, that is like the last thing that I would have thought to say. Because in that moment, with that argument raging, I would have been frustrated, disappointed, saddened, maybe angry. Jesus says, you all stuck with me. I want to commend you now because you've stood by my side in my ministry. Here they are arguing over who, which one of them was most likely to get voted vice president or something. And instead of criticism, he corrects them, but then he says, you, you've stood by me. Even in your bickering, and arguing, you're my brothers, with all your weakness. You see, Jesus is not deterred by their weakness. With all their failure and pride, he says, I still want you with me. Instead of demoting you for your pride, in fact, I'm going to do exactly what you ask. Look at the last thing that he does, verse 29. He says, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, to me, I'm like pulling my hair out as I think about this. Jesus, his ways are not like ours because what Jesus did was he just gave them what they wanted. <laughs> they all are arguing about who's the greatest and he says, let me tell you what it's going to be like, brothers. You are all going to reign. First Timothy 2 actually tells us that we will reign with him. I assign, and that word is, is the language of the last will and testament. I bequeath you, to you, a kingdom that you may eat and drink. Do you see the mercy? 
Do you see the kindness and benevolence and gentleness? Even in their sin and weakness, Jesus chose 12 men full of sin and pride and misplaced zeal. He poured himself into them and then he'll go to the cross and pour himself out for them and for us. And instead of scolding them or calling them to some probationary period, he says, I'm going to give you a kingdom so you can reign. So you may always, and here it is, you'll always eat and drink at my table. There'll always be a place. As they, and you can imagine now, as they all sat around this table, and he says, I'm going to have another table in my kingdom, and you'll always be there with me. And now in one sense, there was a specific role given to the apostles. But in another sense, in a greater sense, he's revealing to us that his death that was coming would remove our sin and his resurrection would lead to a victory that we would all share in and that we would reign with him, as 1 Timothy 2.12 tells us. And so we're all invited now to sit and eat at his table forever. If you are a believer in Jesus, that is your future. That is a beautiful, glorious future. And it's a future that's guaranteed, not based on how well you got along with one another, how well you did at raising your family. It's based on what Jesus will go to do here in just a matter of hours on the cross. That place forever, your sin cannot keep you from that table. His grace will set a place for you that will never be taken away. And I would say tonight that if you're here not yet trusting in Jesus, perhaps you were brought, invited by someone, we're first of all so glad that you're here. It's a beautiful thing that you're here, and it's not an accident. God wanted you to be here to hear the news that Jesus saves sinners like you and me. He will take people with all of their pride and selfishness, and if you're honest with yourself, we're all in that same boat. But Jesus will give you a place at the table tonight, not just a, an earthly table, but a heavenly table pictured in this meal that we're about to eat where you can be with him forever. If you will place your faith in Jesus who went to the cross to die for your sin because it gives him delight to dispense such mercy. In fact, today, even though you might be troubled and weighed down by your sin, Jesus wants you to draw near. Even in your sin, it doesn't cause Jesus to recoil as he didn't recoil from the disciples and pull away from them. He doesn't recoil from you tonight because of your weakness. In fact, his mercy causes him to run to you. Dane Ortland, in his marvelous little book, Gentle and Lowly, speaking about the heart of Christ, says this, speaking of Jesus, he does not get flustered or frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. The failure of Jesus' followers does not 
ignite or arouse his anger, it kindles his mercy towards you. So you can run to him tonight and know that he will not cast you out. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are astonished when we realize that our sin should rightly cause you to recoil from us. It should rightly cause us to be cast out from your presence, never to be able to be near you for eternity. But Jesus, this moment in the scriptures shows us your heart, shows us that your heart is to be near to us, that our sin doesn't send us away because you paid for it on the cross. And Lord, we thank you that because of that, we can draw near and even know that we have a place at the table secured for us forever. So tonight, give us hope and give us peace because of that. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.